Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Change. One of the vital things about this is that, one, the problem with economics isn't just that it's wrong, it's that it's creatively incredibly limited. Behavioral science makes it permissible in a business or policy-making setting to suggest counterintuitive things. Yes. I'm Julia Stainforth and I'm Maddie Croucher and we're the hosts of this podcast. Today we're back to the classic Obehave interview format featuring for the first time senior behavioral strategist Eleanor Heather in conversation with executive coach Caroline Webb. Caroline is a former McKinsey partner and is currently the CEO of Sevenshift, an organizational behavior consulting firm. We're also delighted to say that Caroline will be speaking at this year's Nudgestock Festival. Her book, How to Have a Good Day, is the focus of her work with clients, in which she uses insights from behavioural science to transform people's working lives. Now, here are Eleanor and Caroline having a great discussion about having a good day. Caroline, welcome. Um, really excited today to, to have, I'm totally fangirl crushing right now, um, <laughs> on Caroline Webb. It's um, wonderful to be here. Yeah, you. and I think we're just looking over a book by David Grabner. Grabner. Rebor called Bullshit Jobs, and I think it's pretty exciting to have Caroline with us, who's got definitely something that's not a bullshit job. Um, but just to give our kind of our listeners a bit of a background, could you just tell us a bit more about what actually you do for a living? We understand you work in behavioural science. That's right. Um, I've, I focus on showing people how to use insights from the great research that's been done in behavioural science in the last several decades and how to actually apply it to improve everyday working life. So what that means in practice is that a lot of my time is spent coaching individual leaders, working with their teams, helping them behave in ways that um, make them more than the sum of their parts and help them lead change to their organizations. And then sometimes I'm in organizations running workshops helping people figure out how to boost their resilience or their productivity. And all of it is based on behavioral science. So uh, there's nothing I do that is plucked out of thin air. It's all grounded in behavioral economics, behavioral psychology, behavioral neuroscience. And this this hasn't been what you've always done, has it? It's kind of been a, a progression into this field. Well, it's been what I've been doing for quite a long time. I had a first career as an economist. I was interested in economics because I thought it was a rigorous way of thinking about human potential and performance. And I actually, when I was a little girl, wanted to be an astrophysicist. So I was very into natural sciences. And then when I was 16, I did a baccalaureate, which meant that I had to take uh, a broader range of subjects. And so I took an economics class. And uh, my mind was utterly blown because I realized that you could be rigorous in thinking about human stuff. And suddenly the course of my life has changed. So I spent the first professional decade of my life as a professional economist. And I was getting quite frustrated because the behavioral revolution hadn't really broken mm. at that point. You know, it hadn't made uh, its leap into practical application. Yeah. So I was pretty frustrated with the, the mathematical models that I didn't think really predicted anything like reality. Outside of a textbook. Yeah, exactly. So I, th- I thought, well, okay, well, how, how can I get back to what I was originally interested in? And that's when I went into management consulting. I went to right. McKinsey with a very clear intention to do organizational change and leadership work. And that's what I did for 12 years. And so, you know, I never lost the interest uh, as I was doing that work and building that practice in taking an evidence-based rigorous approach. So that became very central to my style. 
uh, drawing on economics and then you know, as time went on more psychology and more neuroscience. Uh, and I always found that people were more willing to consider the possibility that they might behave in different ways yeah. if they understood that there was good research and evidence underneath it. So that, that became very central to my, to my style, to my work in behavioural change over the years. And as much as how, how you lead people and coach them in terms of telling them the science behind it, or is it more that your strategies are built on the science? Or is it kind of yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, certainly with some people, they're not that bothered about the science. They just they like the fact that it's grounded in yeah. something. Others You're not are, just messing with it. Yeah, right. Others, others uh, you know, are, have an appetite for it to be more to the fore. I find when I'm coaching uh, that... Typically, you know, we've got a situation to resolve. For example, you know, there's a project that's running late, and if I'm talking to, you know, I was doing this with a CEO a couple of weeks ago, who's got having some challenges in, in marshalling his organisation towards a really important uh, deadline, big milestone, and we were talking about planning fallacy, mm -hmm. and I could tell him, look, people always run late, or I could explain to him how planning fallacy works mm -hmm. and the fact that. Uh, our brains naturally aren't very good at taking averages. We just take the, the shining example of the one time we achieved the thing in you know, two days as opposed to a week. And then we grab onto that. And we don't do any kind of thoughtful analysis about the average amount of time it takes. And we so often fail to look at the context surrounding the delivery of a project. Yeah. It's like you will not simply be working on this one single thing and nothing else will happen in that interim period. Absolutely. So, you know, our brains like to simplify. And so yeah. we forget the complexity that means that actually this is probably going to take a week. And so, you know, could I talk to him about the fact that this is just, you know, reality, yes, um, but it's helpful to actually explain why it's happening because then he doesn't judge the people that work for him, he understands the mechanism, understands the really human thing to underestimate the amount of time it takes to get something done. And then it's much easier for him to understand the right way to go to people and say, okay, this, this is likely to take longer and to explain a little bit why that is. So it makes him a more empathetic leader, it makes him a more effective leader yeah. if he understands some of the science behind and is it so, you've mentioned that you can consult with some of the world's biggest firms and biggest organisations, often working with like the kind of CEOs and the higher level leaders. Do you ever get to work with the kind of people on the ground effectively or is it a kind of trickle down approach that maybe you could give us a kind of behind the scenes or a day in the life example of, you know, so we can understand what it is. I do work a lot with senior people because as, uh, as an individual it gives me a uh, chance to potentially have a lot of impact if I can help a leader be at their best then you know obviously that can have a, an impact on all of their staff but I also love going deeper in an organization mm -hmm. and that's where the workshops come in as well mm -hmm. uh, so for example um, I've run a couple of workshops for different parts of Google uh, one team was really uh, struggling with the fact that they're all located in different parts of the world and they're really stretched, they're doing something that they really care about and so they're overworked. Um, and they don't want to lose the sense of passion for the work but they do need to find a more effective way of, of working. So they wanted a half day workshop on how to manage overload more effectively. Another part of um, Google, you know, the issue was that they had um, uh, they've got the salespeople and they've got the engineers and they're quite different cultures but they're only successful if they really come together and how do you help people with different perspectives have good conversations mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't make either side defensive half-day workshop on that so it, it really depends on 
the challenge, but the common base is the is the behavioral science research that informs a lot of this stuff. And so you mentioned that um, when we were speaking beforehand, before we came on, um, that you do do a lot of kind of in-depth interviews with people beforehand to kind of get to the crux of what the challenge is, whether that's maybe through workshops or whether it's through interviewing. How do you determine what the behavioural challenges are and what strategies and behavioural science principles and I guess the, the tools and techniques you have in your book should apply? So that's part of the fun of it, is working out how to help someone. Uh, there was someone who I'm working with right now who came to me and you know, the idea was that she had a problem with confidence. Mm -hmm. It turns out, you just ask a few questions and get below the surface, and it turns out it's actually a question of enjoyment and sense of purpose and meaning in the role, mm -hmm. and question of whether she's having a sense of satisfaction from you know, small victories or whether there's just nothing going on that makes her feel good each day. And so that is a good example of where asking the right set of questions to get below the surface means that you uncover you know, the right problem to solve or the right opportunity to chase. And then you know, when I'm working with a senior team, uh, it's really important to actually spend real time with each individual, not just with the CEO, who might have their own view of what the team issue is, but to spend real time with each individual uh, to understand you know, what their perspective is. Because the CEO has one view and he or she has their own biases and we know that he or she has selective attention so uh, we know that they're not going to perceive absolutely everything that's going on however objective they think they are we know that they're going to have confirmation bias so if they have a view that one of the people in the team is underperforming their expectations are going to make sure they see everything that confirms that they're right on that and so it, it really helps me to, to get into depth with each individual to really understand what's going on with them so that I can then help the CEO be the best leader they can be in, um, in bringing the team together. And then, I mean, last week I was three days with a, with a leadership team in Austin, Texas, you know, going quite deep with the group to help them figure out how to work together more effectively. And I don't think I could have done that as, um, as effectively if I hadn't spent the time with each individual. And do, has there been any person or organization whose behavior you find particularly challenging it's maybe even a question oh my god <laughs> you can't ask me that a behavioral science <laughs> approach is not going to work this goes beyond standard principles or we need legislation here or or just been really challenging i will say or what type of behavior maybe that was i will say that because i focus so much on the human universals and I've been so deliberate in thinking about what are the, the truths that cut across culture, age, um, role. Um, I've got to a kind of core set of things that translate into just about every setting. So I, I know it sounds kind of perhaps loose to say it, but I, I've never seen these principles not play out uh, as you would expect. So Such even as? the most conflict, well, um, people who have come to me, for example, you know, in the middle of a really difficult conflict situation, and it seems utterly unresolvable, it turns out that if you understand that people don't think as clearly when they're on the defensive, and 
there's less activity in people's prefrontal cortex when their brain is perceiving any kind of threat. And a threat can be as minimal as something which feels like it's challenging someone's sense of self-worth or mm -hmm. social standing. So it could be being interrupted in a meeting or being left off an email chain. And that's actually really cutting. Do you know when you do get left off an email yeah. train that you, you've been on? And there you go. And it's, it's triggering our feelings of being treated unfairly. Yeah. It's, tr it's triggering our feelings of being excluded. And that's all that it takes to be you know, perceived as a threat by our brains. And if that's going on, uh, anything which challenges your sense of competence, autonomy, purpose, fairness, inclusion, respect, I mean, these are you know, issues that we're you know, facing every single day. If we are perceiving any kind of a threat, then there's less activity in our brain's prefrontal cortex because the brain's busy launching a defensive response, which a lot of people listening will know is the fight or flight fight, flight, freeze, as it turns out, there's three, three types of response to threats, which in the workplace looks like a snappish comment, or, you know, maybe avoidant behaviour, or kind of running from the, you know, people don't run from the room, but they might just kind of not turn up for a meeting. So, you know, this stuff is going on all the time, and if you can understand that small threats will trigger dysfunctional behaviour, and that most bad behaviour in the workplace is actually because someone's brain is on the defensive, then you end up with a very different set of strategies. How do you reduce the sense of threat? Uh, it doesn't mean you have to be lovely to the person, but you can understand that there's something that they're responding to. You know, what is there that you can do to boost their sense of self-worth or social standing that will take them off the defense and make it easier to have a conversation with them? And so that's the sort of thing that I work on. It's probably the, the issue that I work on most with people is how to have difficult conversations without putting other people Oh, that's so interesting, especially in some of the biggest organisations, I imagine. Yeah. But can it bring us around to the thought of, like, what is the future of the workplace? So, Small question. Yeah, but th thinking about, okay, so what is the future? <laughs> but thinking about if, if we're spending, and you particularly are spending so much time trying to resolve, say, these conflict situations, or us from developing defensive mechanisms and tapping into that, but as we progress more and more towards, I guess, optimization of jobs um, and kind of technology being potentially the future, surely we're going to be in more and more of a threatened place or there's going to be less need for engagement in the workplace. And just be interesting to, to think how would behavioral science or how do, does the work that you do um, play out in that area? Well, my take on the future of work is that as more and more of the basic automatable tasks are automated, you, know, you have to think about what's left to human beings. You know, what, are, what is it that we are uniquely good at, uniquely placed to, to, to do well? Now, there's an argument that all of those things will be actually automatable in themselves. But for the moment, we can probably fairly confidently say that qualities like empathy, the ability to really put yourself in someone else's shoes, there and therefore get the best out of them. Um, creativity, uh, the ability to see a way forward when it's not obvious what the right thing to do is. So I'm defining creativity quite broadly, not just yeah. in terms of artistic endeavor. Um, or wisdom, the, the ability to, to weigh perspectives that are not black and white. Um, inspiration, the ability to really you know, capture someone's imagination and motivate them through tough times. Now those things, uh, so empathy, creativity, wisdom, inspiration, very human, 
And if you think about it, most managers today, uh, you know, some, some people are good at, at, at bringing that out of their colleagues and some are not so good. And it's a little bit haphazard at the moment. But actually, we know from behavioral science what is going to help someone be empathetic, how to be empathetic. We know what's going to help us make wise and decisions and how to boost creativity. We know what it takes to motivate people. And the research is there. And quite simple things are, you know, can be built into managers' everyday routines in order to create an environment where those human strengths flourish. So my sense is that you know, as there is more automation, there'll be a premium on organizations that equip their managers with basic behavioral science understanding, you know, so that they're able to make the most of the machines in our heads, <laughs> uh, that, that, that they actually have enough understanding of how human beings think, feel, and behave to actually you know, create environments where human strengths can flourish. So my sense is that actually it will become more important, not less. So I guess I, mean, I would say that, wouldn't I? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will therefore be in more demand. And well, but I do. I mean, my I know, I would my view is then that actually there's a bit of an imperative here. I do think it's remarkable that more organisations and more business schools aren't, you know, aren't building in basic behavioural science mm -hmm. to their training programmes, and I think it's a huge opportunity. And you know, I very much hope that I'll be out of a job in. 10-15 years as this stuff becomes entirely mainstream, so obvious that why would you need someone to write a book or have a good day? It, it's, I, I really do hope that it becomes so obvious that everybody understands you know, the two-system brain, everybody understands what happens to the defensive brain. Because there, um, there's an element though, an argument for like, whilst we can all understand and know, is being able to apply in the moment, especially when, you know, in, in the States and in the UK, we are among some of the busiest, um, uh, longest hour working societies that oftentimes people are sleep deprived and they're not operating from a rational perspective. You're in a kind of quick, automatic, hot decision making state most of the time. So whilst we might, in our cold, better states, be able to understand these things, how do you then apply it in an act of empathy when that's a very fair question. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I tend to focus on tiny, tiny tweaks that are so, so uh, easy to build into your everyday routines. Uh, I think that, you know, a lot of people go on courses or um, tracts that, you know, lay out these complex systems for how you should live your life. And I just think, you know, if it isn't easy and if it isn't quick, then very hard to actually consider how you would, uh, you know, really change your life. So, for example, you know, if we're if we're talking about, let's say, the importance of doing more single tasking rather than multitasking, recognizing that the deliberate conscious part of our brain you can only do one thing at a time. So the enormous hit to our performance when we're trying to do more than one thing at, at a time is you know, it's really palpable. It's measurable. It's, it's proven. Um, so you can't say to people, okay, well. Uh, just go offline then. Yeah, right? that's not realistic. Just you, get more sleep. Like, just, yeah, right. I mean, but you can say, okay, what would it take for you to get five to ten minutes more good quality thinking time? You know, what would it take for you to ring fence that time? Um, who would you need to tell? Like, what email would you need to send? What would you need to put in your autoresponder? Mm -hmm. um, you, if you can get very, very practical about the small changes that will make a you know, disproportionate difference, then I think you've, you've got a 
um, you've got a chance of, of making a real difference. And one of the, the small tweaks, I suppose, that you mentioned in the book that I really love is the, the difference between setting an approach goal versus an avoidance goal. And yeah. just that as a small kind of reframe of, of what you're trying to achieve. And I've noticed myself, especially when I am really tired, it's something I can still do and it kind of just reframes the way you're approaching something. Right. Um, or there's implementation intentions while yeah. we're talking about goal setting. The fact that if you are clear on what your when then, as I call it, uh, so when this happens, then I will do that. that. I mean, when I'm standing in front of the lift and it's less than five floors up that I need to go, then I will take the stairs. Way more likely, way, way more likely to actually do it than if you just say, oh, I should get more exercise. Yeah. Uh, more you can be specific, the more you can set small achievable goals, and the more you can be deliberate in defining cues for you to do that new behaviour, way, way, I mean, studies suggest 300% more likely to achieve wow. goals. So, you know, that's kind of useful. Um, so thinking about, I guess, the automization of everything or doing yourself out of a job almost if we become more mainstream with behavioural science. If you were to do a behavioural principle or, or a bias, if you were to do that out and design that out of a workplace, if there was one bias you could get rid of, what would it be? Well, I'm going to cheat because I'm going to say selective attention, which is actually oh. a meta, mega yeah, everything. Every, every bias. You know, just accepting that you don't see or hear everything yeah. in your field of vision or in your environment, that you mm -hmm. think you have an objective handle on what the truth is. You really don't. Uh, you, you only perceive part of what's going on. I think people would be so much more humble in disagreements. Uh, you know, I said that this was due on Friday. No, you didn't. Well, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But actually, just understanding there's a possibility you're not right, yeah. or that there was maybe you were right but there was some reason that they didn't perceive what you said in the same way it's um <laughs> it would reduce a lot of tension in, in workplaces and probably in families too and probably gain <laughs> back a lot of time that you spend scrolling through your email thread to be like i'm sure yeah yeah i know i did that <laughs> <laughs> but it also reduces a lot of personal stress as well if you understand that you may have missed something i mean how many talking of scrolling through emails how many times have you been in a slightly bad mood uh, and you've read an email and you thought, this is terrible, this person's awful. And you're about to kind of write this, you're banging on the keyboard and you're kind of writing this email back to them. And then, you know, maybe there's just enough of you that remembers the existence of selective attention and the way that whatever's top of mind for you will then drive where you put your attention. So if you think you're in a, if you're in a bad mood, then you're more likely to think see things that confirm you're in a bad mood, that you're right to be in a bad mood. And then you save your email to draft, and then you come back to the original email the next day and you realise, oh, it wasn't as bad. I remember missing a whole paragraph in an email that I thought was outrageous. <laughs> it was actually from a plumber. I mean, you know, this stuff, you know, affects all of our yeah. lives, right? In all the corners of our life. You know, I thought, how, how outrageous that you, you wouldn't uh, acknowledge the fact that you did the, I mean, the, he did the work in one bathroom, or two bathrooms, and he was supposed to replace a tap, and he replaced the tap in the wrong bathroom. And I was quite annoyed about this. That, that's, I think that's fair to be annoyed about. I'm not saying it wasn't right to be annoyed, but in the email that he wrote back, I thought he hadn't acknowledged the error. 
And I then reread the email later in a cold state and realized that he had. I just skipped the whole paragraph where he said, I'm sorry. <laughs> and why? Because I was in a bad mood about the whole thing, and therefore my brain made sure that I saw things that confirmed I didn't you know, write to be a bad mood. So you probably know the studies yourself. There's studies that have been done with, you know, if I, if I have a group of you and I split uh, you in half and I gave all of you a test uh, to, um, to see, uh, you know, just you know, to, get, to get people into the, into the right frame of mind, and, and then I put half of you in a bad mood by telling you that you failed the test. And then I give everybody a neutral description of an individual, mm -hmm. and I ask you to tell me how likeable this person is. The people who weren't told that they failed the test think this person is perfectly likeable. The people who were told that they failed the test, because they're in a bad mood, perceive this person as less likeable. This is pernicious. This is really deep and it's pervasive. The, the fact that we are, you know, always perceiving things in our own image as well. And do you find that these kind of human universals are true across cultures? Because you work a lot in the states as well as the UK. Um, or do you find that the strategy you employ in the way a behavioral science principle might play out differs? Just thinking recently there was. Some, some research on like the reverse ego depletion where in India willpower is more of, it's not depleted over the day whereas in the UK we have this perception that willpower is waning. Well ego and depletion is a very tricky area of research. Yes, like, yeah. So you know I, I think that but we're the, still trying to figure out exactly how willpower works. It's then. more in I guess the cultural differences that might influence how people approach or respond to. Well I do try to focus on research that seems to have been validated across cultures and across mm -hmm. contexts. Uh, and in fact, you know, when I was writing my book, I was so very, very uh, concerned to make sure that it wasn't just an American book or a British book, mm -hmm. that it really did speak to different cultural contexts. And I have worked across the world, so that helped. Mm -hmm. There was, a, I really made sure to do interviews with pockets of the world where I'd done a bit less work just to, to check that the ideas still resonated. So I think you're absolutely right. The principles that I focus on do seem to be universal. But the way it plays out can be a bit different. So for example, we know that everybody uh, treats being disrespected as a kind of subtle threat. Mm -hmm. And we know that that's going to put you on the defensive and help you know, make you think less clearly and less effectively. So uh, you know, what does disrespect look like in different cultures? It's going to be different. Uh, in a hierarchical organization, uh, there may be more sensitivity to, uh, to, to the sense of uh, status that's being given to the most senior individual. Uh, in, a, in a less hierarchical society or organization, you know, that wouldn't be perceived as a threat uh, so much. So yeah, you've got to be sensitive to the context. So definitely, you, know, you can't just say what looks like a threat in one country will exactly the same, but the underlying principle is usually common. And so, when you are applying these and you're working with, with people kind of longer term, whether it's just a workshop, how do you, do you work with them to define what a successful behaviour change looks like? Or how do you, and do you measure success in a way? Is it return on investment in terms of productivity or just them feeling more confident? Um, absolutely. So when I'm working with a client, 
you know, the issues that they're facing will differ. And one of the first things we do is try to define what's, what good looks like, what success looks like. With an individual, uh, that might be informed by a 360 review. Okay. You know, I might interview a bunch of people around the individual to help them then decide what is it that I want to get to, and where do I want to get to in six months. Um, you know, one person I was working with, you know, sometimes it can be quite pragmatic stuff. It can be, you know, this person was always late. Like, always late. Had no idea how much it was affecting the way that he came across to people. Deeply warm, thoughtful person. Total blind spot. So, you know, if I hadn't done those interviews, then he wouldn't necessarily have understood that that was what he wanted to work on. But uh, he knew that he was at a point of inflection in his career, and he needed to think more about how to be an inspirational leader he felt he could be, possibly, and he knew he wasn't there yet. Um, so there is definitely, you know, a mix of the kind of the deep existential goals and then sometimes very, very practical goals and thinking about how does that, um, you know, what does, what does good look like in six months' time? Um, and then absolutely, you know, if it's an organisation, then you want to do a diagnostic and you want to get, you know, for example, this organisation that I was working with last week, the CEO has gone around on a listening tour in every part of the world to gather feedback from the organisation about what they would like to see um, the ideal state as being. Um, I did all the interviews with the senior leaders and then we put that together and to the extent I can, I let people figure out what the themes are for themselves because the more that they own the sense of direction uh, for the work that we're doing, we know the importance of autonomy. Yeah. We know that people value things more if they've had a chance to shape it and create it. We know that from the research. I'm very, very keen to make sure that people decide for themselves what their goals are, albeit with you know some some shaping and some input from me. Uh, and then absolutely, you know, so, I mean, frankly, the kind of work that I do is pretty easy to see whether something has worked. Or not. Yeah. So how would you address, and I have to say for the record, I don't believe this, but uh, if there was like a, a sceptical cynic out there who said, well, you're just applying these strategies to the gain of the organisation, ultimately, is it just to try to increase productivity and squeeze more out of us, us workers? Like, how would you respond to that? Or I saw one review for the book on Goodreads that made me giggle. I, sh I should, perhaps shouldn't say this, but... I just, I thought, wow, that, that's remarkable. So this person said, what you're doing is equipping sociopaths to be more effective in their work, and it's just outrageous. <laughs> like, well, wow. making a big assumption. You know, only one out of 100 people actually has psychopathic tendencies. So let's assume that 99% of the people reading the book are not, not sociopaths. Um, so, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, it is true that the work I do helps people be more effective at whatever they're trying to do. <laughs> so if someone has evil goals, then yes, you know, this, this stuff is going to help them be more Super effective. Productive. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's partly why I think carefully about who I work with. Yeah. I want to believe in what they're doing. Um, but, you know, regarding the, the, the point about, you know, am I just trying to help organizations squeeze more productivity you know I would always say we know that people perform better when they feel excited and motivated yeah. by what they're doing you know as soon as you get beyond complex predictable tasks people perform better when they have a sense of personal why uh, so you know it, it it's it, yes of course there are things that you can do in changing up the way you structure your time that will help you get uh, be more more productive 
Um, but actually, if you define productivity as you know performance in its broadest possible sense, there's an awful lot that employers need to do to think about how to create meaning mm -hmm. and purpose. In it is meaning and purpose, and it maps so closely to to mental well-being right. and that that sense of purpose in your job. Right. Exactly. Um, so there shouldn't be much, uh, you know, much air between the organisation goal and the individual goal. If the individual is feeling motivated, has a sense of well-being, everything in research suggests that they will also be performing better. So. Okay, so if you were to, nice hypothetical questions, because we know how good we are at answering hypothetical questions, <laughs> but if you were to be CEO of the world, as um, opposed to my time consultant. <laughs> <laughs> what what strategy or kind of behaviourally informed strategy would you mandate or introduce into every workplace? And why, I suppose? Well, it overlaps a bit with the question you asked earlier. Yeah. Um, if I was CEO of the world, I would make sure that people understand uh, the way that brain's defensive response works and that human beings are better able to access the higher cognitive functions that make them human beings if they are not feeling defensive. And that has huge implications for all sorts of things. But the thing is, the moment I say that, I say, but it's also yeah. a two-system brain. <laughs> yeah. I don't understand two-system brain. So, you know, there are, there's a reason why I pulled out, you know, three big themes in yeah. the work that I do. So I, I had originally a longer list, but that was all I could pare it down yeah. to. was mind-body loop, two-system brain, and discovered event. So, so uh, to, that's to a not, cop out, right? No, no, it's good. <laughs> and, it, and it links nicely to the kind of question I wanted to ask as well. It's like, and not to put you on the defensive, if I was to shred your book, mm -hmm. what one technique, one technique would you take out and save as as the one technique if you were to apply anything? Yeah, you would do the one technique that I would save if I could do nothing else, and in fact, actually, is the one thing I do when I do nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> um, and everything in the book actually had to pass through several filters. Is it replicated science? Uh, backing this up, is it cross-cultural mm -hmm. uh, and also is it something I do myself? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I really wanted to walk my own talk. So, you know, I do generally do the things that are in the book, but the one thing I absolutely always do every single day is to end the day by looking back at what was good in the day. And there are all sorts of reasons why that is a good thing to do. Um, you know, we know that we've got imperfect attention. We can't pay attention to everything in the world. So you know, we know that we're only going to notice a certain proportion of what's good. We know that if we're in a good mood, we're going to notice more good things. So it's a very nice thing to do at the end of the day because it's a good way of putting yourself in a calmer, happier place before you try to go to sleep. Um, sleep is. Um, we, we also know how the peak end effect works. So we know that we're disproportionately influenced by the way something ends as well as its most intense moment. And so it's a nice way, if you've had a crappy day, to make sure that the way you remember the day, you're sort of pulling up the average if you end it on a high note. And if you're trying to think about, you know, what, what were three good things that happened today and it really wasn't a great day, it doesn't matter if it's just a really tiny thing that you remember. 
So it really, you know, it starts to it starts to shift the way you remember the day, and the way you remember the day is ultimately the way you feel about your life. So that's really lovely, and I suppose that's a good note to end on. Um, thank you, Caroline. Thank you. If you want to hear more from Caroline, she's on Twitter at Caroline Webb, and her book How to Have a Good Day is available from most retailers. We'll link it in the description too. We are active on Twitter at Ogilvy Change, and if you feel like reading slightly more, we post regularly on different topics within behavioral science at our blog o-behave.tumblr.com. And as always, we'd like to thank Sound Lounge, enabling advertisers to use music in more powerful ways, and Julian Goodkind for managing the music for this show. Thanks for listening.